Hi, I'm Selma Qureshi, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. Today's show is the conclusion of our two-part series on the present and future frameworks in theoretical neuroscience workshop, which was hosted by our own Fidel Santamaria and Horacio Rothstein this past February of 2019. In episode one, we heard about the premise of the workshop at its outset, and today we follow up with a glimpse at the main points of discussion that emerged over its course. The participants self-organized into five work groups that broadly defined the priorities of the workshop, and on this panel, a representative spoke for each. They are Farzan Nadim of NJIT Rutgers for the Organization of Neural Theories workgroup, Carmen Canavier of LSU for the Coding workgroup, Kresimir Yosik of the University of Houston for the Brain-Body Control Loop workgroup, Horacio Rothstein of NJIT for the Statistics Dynamics workgroup, and Fidel Santamaria for the Multiscale Theories workgroup. One other key point about the workshop is that it became clear very early on that the many talented student participants who competed to attend had a critical voice in shaping discussions. So we decided to include two of them on the panel to offer their perspectives on the work groups and the future of neural theory. They are Habiba Azab of the University of Minnesota's graduate program and Matthew Singh of Washington University in St. Louis. The panel was bustling with important voices with a lot to say, so I sat this one out and let Fidel lead the discussion. What follows is the first stage in a process that will continue well beyond the workshops, so stay tuned for opinion and commentary papers from each of the work groups over the course of the next year. Enjoy. Well, um, this is the second um, podcast for the um, present and future frameworks of theoretical neuroscience, and we are doing it at the end of the of the meeting. And the story is that we proposed uh, the attendees, um, we proposed them some ideas of how to divide theoretical neuroscience and how to move forward. They arrived, they didn't, we didn't agree, I guess, and then the, the groups were formed in what we um, um, believe are themes that uh, there should be a focus on developing in, in the future for theoretical neuroscience. And those themes are uh, multi-scale theories, statistic dynamics, uh, fine red is spike time, and we can change those names, but uh, those are the main ideas, and, and brain-body feedback um, uh, theories, and, sorry, organ and organizing theories. Um, so those are five uh, themes, and um, we have representatives from uh, those themes, and we'll, we'll just go around the table and uh, talk a little bit about what we identify, what we see as the future, and the challenges. Okay, so let me let me first start um, with uh, Farzan Nadim, and let's take it from there. Hi, I'm Farzan Nadim from New Jersey Institute of Technology and Rutgers University, Newark, and I represent the group that was in charge of, as Fidel said, organizing theories or theory of theories. And part of our mission was to um, <clears throat> kind of discuss and come to an agreement on what are the useful categorizations of different theories and different types of modeling in a way that would help neuroscience move forward in at least the next decade or so. And um, our discussion went on different types of categorization from different types of models to thinking about theory from the perspective of whether it is uh, hypothesis-driven or whether it's simply exploratory, and what uh, distinction is there between theory and models and how that 
plays into different levels of organization of the, um, let's say, the nervous system and, you know, understanding the animal or even social interactions among individuals. And um, we also had a very nice discussion about the role of behavior and how to connect that into the discussion of what neuroscience is and what role theory would play. So that's an overall um, kind of theme of what our group was responsible for. And I think um, over the past um, three days where we had our work group working, um, we accomplished a lot, at least. I was very pleased and I, I gauged that by the amount of information that came in. The, the, the level of discussion in which everybody was very understanding and, and open-minded in these discussions, so nobody kind of stuck to one thing and started yelling at each other. And I also gauge it by how much I learned, which was a lot. I learned a lot in these discussions, and which pleases me. And I confess that I come in pretending I know everything, but I don't. I, I just like to provoke people to tell me things that help me understand and I, I'm the type of person also that doesn't mind saying that I'm ignorant so if it comes to it I say I just don't understand what you're saying and that helped clarify a lot for me so there were points in our discussion where I thought the language of the discussion was going beyond my understanding it was becoming very abstract and technical so we brought it down in a way that I could write it in simple words for myself while I was taking notes. That's what I, and I think that's going to be a challenge for all, all the groups. I mean, uh, um, just to, for the audience, uh, the, the objective is to come up with uh, uh, working papers first that they will, then they will be disseminated and published and um, people will, and maybe eventually we can reopen them for a larger community. But let me just move to, to Horacio that, as a rep of the statistic dynamics or dynamic statistics, depending on. Yeah, so I was interacting with two groups, with the deliverable theory group and, <clears throat> and with the dynamics and statistics group. Things mm. were not already told. Mm -hmm. yeah, so I'm not a representative because uh, I was not appointed to be. Appointed. But, uh, uh, but I can tell a bit what was the, uh, what we did. Um, we essentially tried to understand the differences <coughs> between the statistical and dynamic uh, approaches to understanding neural activity at different levels and in general terms. And uh, one thing we understood is that we don't understand each other. Uh, and that uh, there is a lot of work to do to try to put this to But the, the not understanding is um, semantic or mm -hmm. is it a... a not a, understanding a, is a mindset, mm -hmm. different mindsets, but we are trying to, mm -hmm. to capture to still need to sit, discuss, and try to capture what's the essence of the different mindsets. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a different. There are differences in languages. In language, mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, we want to say the same with different words, and that's what, when we don't understand each other. In other cases, there's a different in, in, in an approach, in techniques, or in mm -hmm. the way we think about the problems. It goes mm -hmm. back to the to the mind. So I think that's a. Do you think uh, it's a roadblock? Uh, I mean, if we want to develop more theory along uh, statistics and dynamics uh, together, separate, is is that a roadblock, or or what what has to be overcome? Well, when we need as a, as a scientists, we should focus on the problem and develop tools to to solve the problems, right? Whether they are 
in, in the theoretical tools are dynamic or statistical or whatever, it really doesn't matter. It's not a matter of identity. We are not married to the tools. But what we need to do is we need to try to, to understand how to combine them, how to integrate them in such a way that we can take advantage of them. Right? And that cannot be done unless we uh, discuss them and fight about them. And, uh, mm. and we put them in, in, in words that we can convey to the community. Uh, yep. awesome. Carmen Canabier, LSU School of Medicine in New Orleans. I'd, I'd like to revisit what both Farzan and Horatio have mentioned. Horatio. Uh, what? Horatio. Horatio. Don't cut that part. Horatio. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, what they have both said was that there's, we have these implicit biases that we're not necessarily even aware that we have, and this meeting has made us aware of it. And one issue that came up constantly was people have emotional attachments to what the word coding means. And my, what Bill and I, Bill Litton is unfortunately not still here. He was the uh, co-leader of the group that I was in, which was nominally to look at um, spike time coding versus spike rate coding. Um, but it seems like we, we came up with, you know, all the groups seem to be dealing with the same issues. Because when you're talking about time versus rate, you're, also, you're talking about coding. So what are you coding? How are you coding it? And the first thing that came up is that there was a re there's two different ways to look at coding, and some people don't want to use the word coding for the other way to look at it. And one way is just correlational. What information what information is in this spike train? What are the statistics in the spike train? What's the mutual information with the stimulus? That sort of thing. But the other way, and that our group thinks has gotten maybe not as much attention and maybe should get more attention, is the decoding by the biophysical downstream elements. And it was brought up by the person sitting next to me, in fact, uh, Matthew, uh, saying that there's multiplexing and that uh, you could have the same, the same spike train from one neuron going to two different receivers and conveying different information to those two different receivers. And so that concept, I think, only has, makes sense when you're looking at the causal sense of coding or the, the, sense, the point of view of the downstream receiver because the information in the spike train from the correlational point of view is going to be exactly the same in either case. But you're going to, the two downstream receivers are going to get a different picture. Um, and then just simple things like you know, firing rate versus uh, temporal coding, I mean rate coding versus temporal coding, the simple thing is just how do we define firing rate? And it turns out that we were not using, we were using the same words but we had a different picture in our heads of what we meant. So uh, firing rate, as it's often used in these rate-based models, is not an observable. It's inferable. It's not deterministic. It's probabilistic. And uh, so, uh, so a, a probabilistic firing rate has been used in these firing rate codes. The one I'm most familiar with is the, the classical, if you have uh, a, a a neuron and you give a, 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 a V1 neuron, for example, and you give a stimulus, you give repeated trials, you're going to get different, um, you're going to get uh, different results on every trial. And so one, one of the other themes that we keep coming back to is, is there noise in the nervous system and what's causing this variability? Uh, and Bill and I are of the opinion that, well, I, I guess, that, that, I don't think I'm going to get into that one. That's a little too hairy and I don't have that much time. But just a probabilistic code, this rate code that you have to average over something to get this pro to, to infer the probabilistic rate. So you, the, the 
version I'm most familiar with is coding over a population of neurons. So if you give a stimulus, all these neurons respond in their probabilistic way, but they all have the same inhomogeneous firing rate, then you could infer that uh, probability of firing by averaging over your inputs. And I think that's the most common version. But I was talking to Tatiana earlier, and we're not sure if that particular version is instantiated in the nervous system. If someone has an example, we'd like to hear about it. And there's other versions of rate. So I'm trying to think if there's any other main points. Uh, well, coding by assemblies, I know, is particularly important. To, so, so I think there's other definitions of rate coding other than the, you know, the classical one that I just described. And so in our, in our paper, which we've, we've got a draft um, where we've, we've all been working on it uh, kind of asynchronously. And our, our hope is to put out a paper on uh, this entitled, no, sorry, that's an incorrect use of the word, titled, um, Firing Rate Versus Temporal Coding. Uh, uh, some kind of, a, a false dichotomy. That was it. That I, so I, that's all I have to say on that. Good. Jump, no, uh, let me just keep going with the uh, group. So, uh, Creso, can you tell us a little bit of what you guys discussed? Yeah, so uh, yeah. I'm, I'm Creso Josic uh, from the University of Houston and Math Department. So, uh, I was part of the group on embodied cognition. Uh, I think we had several different titles for the group, but the idea was to really uh, distinguish or look forward towards using uh, more naturalistic. Uh, types of experiments to analyze uh, the responses of the nervous system. In particular, um, frequently, for very good reasons, um, we have been using stimuli that are presented in uncorrelated fashion, so from trial to trial, and in a, such a way that the animal was not uh, um, able to choose um, what to pay attention to, uh, and uh, therefore uh, the, the, the space in which these uh, stimuli live was relatively low dimensional. Now this is for a good reason because uh, it allows for a much more consistent and uh, simple statistical analysis, increased statistical power and so on, and the interpretability of the results. However, it is also divorced from uh, the natural uh, situations in which an animal typically will make decisions. So we were thinking about uh, how to move beyond that in different ways, and this is, these are not completely new ideas, but will have to be developed further. So one of them uh, would be uh, closed loop decision making. So this is, these are cases in which an animal is allowed to choose the next stimulus, or uh, where the next stimulus depends on an action that an animal has before performed. Um, these are decisions that are done in a social context. So uh, with multiple animals interacting, either cooperatively or um, or competing, uh, and or both in a, or, uh, situations in which an animal has a choice, or a pair of animals has a cho choice to either cooperate or uh, to compete, and um, as well as decision makings by by social animals. So um, these are all <coughs> excuse me. All of these have been um, areas that have been studied. Uh, in different fields from economics to um, the um, other parts of biology, uh, ecology in particular, mm -hmm. but have uh, maybe not been examined from the viewpoint of neuroscience. And now with the advent of new recording techniques that allow us to record from freely behaving animals, the hope is that we will gain new insights into the neural underpinnings that underlie these behaviors. 
Well, um, so I'm, I'm Fidel Santamaria from um, University of Texas San Antonio, and I was in the multi-scale theories. And uh, the objective of this is uh, something that is happening across the planet. Um, there are initiatives in Europe and the, in the U.S. and other places that want to build mechanistic, we can discuss what mechanistic is, but um, models that can start from the, the activity of a neuron, abstract or biophysical detail models and then build from there up to networks and as you build up to the next level you want to abstract the, uh, the other scales. So the traditional what we see as a, the method of choice at this point or one of the methods of choice um, was uh, mean field theory and then we, we are just asking the question well is mean field theory going to be enough given all the data and the heterogeneity that we're getting out of, of that data, massive amounts of data, and we expect that, that to be uh, increasing in the next five, ten years as, as data acquisition in anatomy and, electro and electrophysiology of cells becomes automated. So we, we ask, well, the, the mean field has to be able, the theory has to be able to incorporate heterogeneous distributions, right? And, the, and, and we, we went into some detail on that. But uh, also we, we, we asked, maybe, maybe mean field is not going to be enough when we have uh, so much heterogeneity and we will have to develop, uh, take other strategies to model uh, brain uh, behavior. And we also discussed issues of how to cap all these approaches. And um, we were talking about like uh, how, how to use um, metabolic consumption as a way to to discriminate between models that can be realistic or not. Right? I mean, if you have a model that consumes all the ATP in the brain just for a single neuron, then it's probably not realistic. So that that we went into in, in that direction. And that's that. But okay, so now I go back to like the directing the table, I guess. But um, well, another objective of this it was to um, there was a competition for um, trainees, you know, grad students, and postdocs to come to this workshop. And um, Horacio and and myself, we thought, you know, let's ask them what is what you're doing now and how, what is what you're going to, to contribute. So they had to send us a one page with two paragraphs. And it was challenging. And we selected a, a, a bunch of people from uh, across um, uh, the United States. And uh, I wanted to, there are two at the table, and I wanted to, to get their impressions of where they come from first, and then uh, what they got from, from uh, the workshop and your opinion. So please, uh, introduce yourself and tell us. Uh, okay. So I'm Habiba Azab. I'm from the University of Minnesota. I work in uh, Ben Hayden's lab. Um, the work that we do is mostly in the prefrontal cortex, and we're trying to understand the neural circuits that are involved in decision-making, mostly value-based decision-making. At least that's been the focus of my work. Um, so I've been very interested in theory as an experimentalist and as a grad student, and I think this has been very useful for me to hear about the questions that we don't know how to solve and the questions that we don't are not even quite sure how to tackle from people who are very well established and very knowledgeable in the field and all the debates about you know what do we mean by these terms that we're all using in very different ways were very informative to me to hear people actually discuss these things head-on um, was very useful if I, I can interrupt for a second 
I think rather than listening and hearing, you were participating actively in the discussion. Yeah. So <laughs> I believe that, uh, I mean, not yourself, not you personally, but all the students and trainees. So. Um, we were afraid that they were not going to say anything, actually. Right. So, uh, uh, but uh, we were wrong. Yeah. 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 Unlike the well-established faculty, at least me and I think many of my colleagues, we're not afraid to say we don't know what's going on and we don't understand. So it's, it's, we need to speak up at some point to be like, hey, what are you guys talking about? So how was that experience? Uh, that was very informative. And it was great to see such different perspectives coming together. Because sometimes we read about these concepts and we're like, oh, I don't quite know what this concept means. And now you realize that there are two different concepts. It's just the same name. So it was very illuminating to, to see this. And also to hear people talk about what we don't know how to do, which doesn't come through oftentimes in papers except like in the discussion section. So it's very good to hear like, OK, these are actually open problems. Nobody knows the answer to this. Um, I was personally in the, the Theory of Theories group. And one of the insights that came out of that that was very gratifying to me was the idea of exploratory theory formation. A lot of times, especially in written papers, the end product emphasizes like we had this hypothesis, we knew exactly what we were going for, and that's what we found. Um, I work in the prefrontal cortex, and it might just be my ignorance as a grad student, but I feel like we don't know much. We don't always know what we're going for when we're going in. So it was very gratifying to hear this formalized as like there is such a thing as exploratory theory formation. This is how you can do it well. These are ways that we can do it better. Um, so I think that was one of the big takeaways that I walked out from this workshop with. And we also have, uh, please, uh, Matthew. Oh, um, so uh, I'm Matthew Singh. I am coming from Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, I work with uh, Todd Braver in the Department of Psychology and Shinung Ching in uh, Systems Engineering. And we study uh, how to identify dynamics in the neural system, how to model the dynamics of uh, whole brains, and how to relate these dynamics to cognition. So that, of course, involves varying levels of abstraction. It was very interesting to see the uh, different levels uh, which uh, the different PIs here worked in terms of uh, some who were almost purely theoretical in terms of uh, uh, working with mathematical models, and then extending those into things that can be simulated more easily or uh, abstracting those directly in terms of behavior uh, as opposed to those who are really involved in data collection and uh, in the early stages of theory development in terms of getting the theory in terms of uh, modeling the neural activity they observe um, but weren't quite sure yet exactly how to translate between skills. Um, I thought it was really interesting to see how uh, uh, different investigators at these levels interacted and uh, different ways of uh, phrasing arguments in terms of um, do I want to start with a, uh, with a very specific example uh, and that can make, uh, you know, inform us about what are the limitations of an idea versus uh, do I want to start with a general framework that I think we should use to frame uh, all of our thoughts going forward. Um, I was actually uh, very... Um, uh, glad with the uh, work that my group did, we were the uh, multi-scale modeling group. Uh, we had a very different approach than some of the other groups in that um, ours has a very tangible application in that we were thinking of how do we improve you know, models themselves rather than theories. And so we thought uh, we took the usual approach with the bottom-up perspective um, and we actually identified some new ways that uh, you know, models across all scales were uh, lacking some information. Uh, and it was nice to see the uh, interplay of, you know, the different uh, uh, work that each of the uh, contributors, uh, Alain and Estex, 
and uh, John Minzel had, uh, as well as Fidel, of course, uh, and their own perspectives in terms of looking at their data and perhaps things that maybe not have, you know, made into wide circulation yet to get a very uh, hands-on feel of what are they actually seeing and can't explain yet in uh, the form of a published piece. Good. Uh, you wanna, uh, no, I'd like to ask uh, <clears throat> Farzan, because we talked about that, but the rest of the PIs present here, how did they saw the participation of the graduate students in the uh, Um I was actually quite impressed with the graduate student and postdoctoral trainees that were in our group, because I think their contribution was equal, if not more, than most of the PIs who were present, and especially in pointing out the um, the issues that need needed clarification, and also coming up with, uh, I was very impressed with this coming up with examples from the literature of things that we couldn't, you know, the group was searching for, but we couldn't immediately come up with examples. It was the postdocs and grad students who came to the rescue because I think they have the fresh mind and they keep up with the literature that's as it's coming out and keep everything in their heads where, you know, most uh, established PIs, we have become very forgetful and we are looking more and more at the big picture and forget about the actual details that matter. So in that sense, I think without the graduate students and postdocs present, in our in this workshop, it would have been a much much poorer experience, and I don't think we would have accomplished at all the level of um, the level of discussion and the level of understanding that we achieved. I have a question for Barzan. So y'all were talking about, and I remember the original mandate was what would what would a theory deliverable look like? Is that correct? And were you looking? that in an abstract sense? Are we looking at what areas do we need theory development in? No, so um, the, the original question we went after is if the idea of, uh, and f at least from my viewpoint, from the uh, presidential brain initiative, if the idea is that a project that is being put into a proposal needs to have as its outcome a theory or a computational model that will capture what was what it's set to find mm -hmm. right then what do we actually expect out of this so what is it that we want people to deliver because completely there, there the is abstract. a conflict. completely in the abstract so the first day that we discussed these issues we actually came up with ideas and theories that were completely scale free we actually discussed, you know, what would a theory be, what, how would a model represent it, but we didn't go at, let's say, looking at, you know, the Hodgkin-Huxley level or right. looking at the subcellular level or the, you know, mean field level, etc. We did not discuss that at all. And then when the issue of scaling came in, which Horacio brought into our discussion, we went back and started discussing levels and dividing things into levels and thinking about, well, where does theory fit in, which we came up effectively with the conclusion is other than everywhere, one of the places it is really important is crossing the levels, right? Whereas models usually express themselves at one level, right? It's the theory that will bridge it for us. And um, 
I think that whole discussion, in a way, gave us a framework in which we can now come and say, look, when you say come up with a theory, when you say come up with a set of models, you shouldn't have an a priori notion that this is what the model or theory looks like because it can fall into all these different categories and each of these would provide insight into what that area of neuroscience is trying to tell us, right? And it would be nice to have Different, methodolo method different methodologies of categorizing the theories or categorizing the models, which would allow people to say, yeah, I mean, I'm going after, as Habiba said, an exploratory theory, right? I didn't start with a hypothesis, but I completely acknowledge that this area that I'm working at, I have a question, it requires a theory for everybody, including me, to put our questions into that framework and go forward. Okay, that is interesting because we all have to do the exploratory part. Yeah. But so how do you pay for that? <laughs> no, but at least formalizing it and allowing funders to know and allowing the community to know that this is okay. The community acknowledges that we are building theories and it doesn't always have to be based on a particular set of hypotheses or rules and whatnot, right? But you know, we, ha we have to start somewhere, and, uh, and it's necessary. And that goes back to the motivation of this workshop to develop uh, a roadmap for the funding of theoretical neuroscience in the future, and we want to inform funding agencies and people that are interested in funding um, neuroscience um, um, as a guide. Right. Right? So our group was much less abstract in that sense, since we had a particular problem to focus on. And so the theory we wanted was for people to figure out thought experiments, uh, shift jittering spikes, jittering phases of oscillations, and figure out, how, you know, how is that going to impact the coding? You know, what are the predictions? So you can then determine which coding strategy is involved. And Bill was adamant, you know, that we need, that they're not mutually exclusive, that there's multiplexing and multiplexing within multiplexing, meaning that you can be using different kinds of codes, pattern codes, synchrony codes, sequence codes, uh, rate codes. And it's, I also think it's unreasonable to expect that one rate coding strategy is going to suffice for the entire nervous system of every animal. So um, it's fair. We, our group kind of shied away from those discussions, partly because we knew that your group is discussing the question of coding versus processing, representation, all of that. And there was another group that was discussing the question of control and behavior and closed loop versus open loop. So. We touched on these things, but our focus went mainly in the idea of how do we categorize theories. I just, wanna, uh, just wanted to add uh, about the, uh, why the participation of the trainees was extremely valuable in this discussion, is that at a certain point, experience becomes a burden, especially in looking forward. Um, we, it, we had some excellent scientists here, or not some, all of the scientists were excellent, but also representatives from the generation that had uh, made huge strides in understanding the nervous system. Uh, I'll just mention a couple. This is not to be exclusive towards the rest, but Carmen, of course, and, and John Rinzel. And, uh, and they, they bring a certain way of thinking about the nervous system that has been, that has really allowed us to see from the dynamical system point of view what cells do. Now, the question is, uh, which parts of that view are going to help us in understanding 
the population of cells as a totality, how to collectively work to represent information, not just as part of the of the brain, but as we, in particular, as my group said, as part of a ecosystem uh, which they act upon. Um, you know, some of these uh, some of these concepts um, may not translate uh, and uh, or may have to be changed when we look at things. Uh, uh, when we look at new data, when we look at the new tasks, and when we're trying to understand the different questions. That's, that's great. I mean, that, that, that shows that the discussion, is, it was very rich, and uh, um, people that will listen to this, I hope they, they get the idea that the, now the entropy is high again, in, uh, and, and there's good energy, and we will uh, work on these papers um, after this meeting is over. But let me just wrap up, and thank you, everybody, and I just want to say, Thank you for NSF. The, the, this was sponsored by NSF uh, and also all the other uh, sponsors, the Neuroscience Institute at UTSA that provided all the logistics, uh, Dr. Salma Korishi, who organized the, the podcast, and Greg Granados, um, the New Jersey Institute of Technology, Horacio, and I are the co-organizers uh, of this thing, and the Institute of Brain and Neuroscience Research at NGAIT. Let me just thank the organizers one more time, Fidel Santa Maria and Horacio Rothstein, because when you started this workshop and I looked at the participants and I looked at the agenda and I wrote you when you told us what you want, um, Carmen and I start our discussions with, I thought this is going to be a mess. <laughs> I, was, I thought, there's no way you can pull this off. It's just going to be a mess. I said, as, as I know, you set your expectations very low and like to be surprised <laughs> and pleased. I am very pleased. I mean, you guys achieved something that I did not think was possible. And kudos to both of you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Thank you.